And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am your host, as always, J.D.K. Winnikin. You can find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com, and on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me rather easily. Would love to hear from you. Chat a little bit and get your feedback on the show. Maybe get some ideas, talk about some of that on the air, what have you. So uh, look me up and let's chat. Welcome to episode number 38 of this show for September 27th. 2021 and um feeling good today um despite the fact that it is the entire world looks gray out the window here in seattle today gray and wet uh it is definitely fall uh but i'm still pretty fired up and i'm in a good mood today the title of today's episode is um big bird could save the world yes that big bird (laughs) from sesame street and i'll explain what that means here in just a minute but first all the haiku to give you a hint a little bit what we're going to be talking about And here's the haiku for today. It's not about a bird. It's about a spider. Here we go. There's a reason why spiders spin many web strands. Every one matters. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I just got two looks in the studio like, wow, that's great. Thank you, you guys. Um, And let me explain what all that means. And and first of all, thanks to uh, my producer, Stacy, for for, uh, sitting in the studio for me last week and and having, uh, having an episode with me. While I was down in Portland uh, visiting the sponsor for this show, Airway Science for Kids, and I had a blast. And if you if you didn't catch last week's episode, uh, be sure to go look it up as a podcast and listen because that organization is doing amazing stuff. And uh, if you'd like to know more about them, you can find them at uh, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or you can reach out, them, out to them directly uh, via email at info at airwayscience.org. That's info at airwayscience.org. And uh, what I was amazed by and and excited by and inspired by, that's one of the reasons I'm feeling so good today, was uh, how the type of work that they are doing to help underserved youth find career and life pathways in aviation and aerospace, even if they never go into aviation and aerospace, to open up the the realms of possibility uh, for these kids, really got me thinking about the best ways in which we can work with one another and writ large how the world can work. And uh, so I got really excited about it. And I had a lot of takeaways from my visit last week. Um, But my biggest takeaway (laughs) from all of it was that we'd all be really better off in our individual lives, our community lives, our national and our global lives. If we listened to big bird more often. Yeah. That big bird from Sesame street. Uh, Almost. I mean, big bird's been around for such a long time. He's now multi-generational an American icon and uh, the reason I'm thinking about Big Bird in this sense is not because birds fly and airway science for kids is about aviation. That just kind of matches up nicely. It, uh, I, I got thinking about what Big Bird talks about when it comes to cooperation. There's a song that he sings that um, not quite my generation, but maybe uh, the generation just after that might remember a song that he used to sing called That's Cooperation. And just roll with me on this. I'll tell you why I'm headed this way. Uh, but I want you to hear the uh, the lyrics to That's Cooperation. And just imagine uh, Big Bird and a bunch of other smaller birds sitting around singing back and forth. And this is how it goes. A wise old bird once told me, and I believe it's true, he said the world's full of different birds with different points of view. But sometimes there's a job so big, if we want to get it done, we've got to bring those birds together and all work as one. And that's cooperation. 
With just a little cooperation, we can make it through me and you. The red bird and the blue bird, the falcon and the finch, even the proudest of the peacocks knows when to give an inch. Because no matter what the problem, we're sure beyond a doubt, if we put our heads together, we're going to figure it out. Oh, it doesn't matter whether we're birds of a different feather, as long as when the right time comes, we can work together. That's cooperation. (laughs) I know, it's great. And uh, the reason why I'm thinking about it is, yes, in part, because cooperation, if you were to just take a look at your own social media feed or the news or the newspaper, uh, cooperation seems to be in limited supply uh, these days. And uh, and no, I'm not going to sit here and lament the, the good old days because the good old days really never existed. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Every time's difficult. But uh, I started thinking about when I was coming off this visit and thinking about Big Bird, stories from history about where cooperation actually not only matters, but has actually saved the world. And that's where the title of today's episode comes from, because Big Bird's advice about cooperation, that song, if applied in certain situations, could save the world. And I want to tell you uh, today one story about actually when it did. That big of a that big of a claim. Yes, something saved the world. I'm going to talk about that and had to do with cooperation. And then maybe one of the uh, applications that we could use today uh, with cooperation. So uh, and this story that I'm going to tell you is about a person that you probably haven't heard of. Uh, if you are a pilot or an aviator or somebody, maybe an aviation geek, you may, you may have. But it's not a famous person in the sense that this was a pilot or an astronaut or anything like this. But this was one of the most important people in aviation history. And you could argue um, in 20th century American history. His name is Edgar Gorell. And Edgar Gorell, uh, he's no longer alive. He lived uh, the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and he became an aviation legend uh, over time. Uh, for a really important reason leading up to World War II. Uh, his background was uh, he'd gone to the service academy. He was a World War I pilot and strategic planner, a really big one, actually, for the American Expeditionary Force in 1970-1918, and distinguished himself so well um, as a tr- strategic planner that he was commissioned to oversee and write the entire history of the American Expeditionary Force in World War I. It ended up being 280 volumes <laughs> uh, that is now in the National Archives. And I knew there was a reason I liked him. He's a history guy, just like me. Uh, and he, became, he established a big name for himself in the aviation world. And in the early 1930s, he reentered national prominence as part of the so-called Baker Board, which was a seven-person uh, seven panel put together, civilian panel put together to oversee and uh, rule on the so-called airmail scandal of early the 1930s. Uh, U.S. Airlines started out delivering mail, not passengers. That's how they had made their money. Uh, So companies like United Airways and things like that, they made money by delivering mail. And under President Herbert Hoover, they'd gotten some, seems to be, some pretty cushy contracts from the government. Uh, Several airlines in particular got cushy contracts from uh, the government to deliver the mail and supposedly excluded other ones from this. Now, when President Roosevelt came in, succeeding Hoover in 1933, uh, they pounced on, on, on this whole thing. And uh, this scandal about this led to uh, the disgrace of a number of highly prominent people in the airline industry. And long story short, led the airlines to move towards passenger service rather than mail service uh, to make money. And they, they realized, a friend of mine just told me today, 
that the way they did this actually was they just changed the name under the rules that the Baker board and others uh, ruled on at the end of this. They realized they could just change the name of their company and would be able to move over to passenger service <laughs> instead of being punished. Um, so United Airways became United Airlines and that type of thing. So Gorel was on that. And then uh, in the aftermath of that, he was asked to become the first president of the American Tra- Air Transport Association, which was a trade association that 14 of these big air carriers all created in the aftermath of the airmail scandal to work together for their common benefit. And that includes airlines you've heard of, most likely United, American, uh, the old ones, Western, Eastern, TWA, and others. And so Gorel was in a really important position um, helping guide the airlines and help them work through this big transition. But in 1937, uh, Gorel was ahead of the curve in that when he looked around the world, he became convinced that war was coming. Of course, by 1937, uh, Hitler was was working towards war steadily and trying to keep the world um, blind to that fact. Japan was openly aggressive in the Far East, invading into China fully in 1937. And Gorel believed it was only a matter of time before the United States was involved. And he was not in the majority uh, in that belief. Many people in the United States, the majority of the country, in fact, was staunchly isolationist in the 1930s, gripped by the Great Depression. Many people believed that the wars would stay on the other side of both oceans and that it was in America's best interest to stay out. However, Gorel, looking forward, said, there's no way we're going to stay out of this. And his big concern was that when war came, chances are the country would be surprised. And one of the first things that the government would do would be to nationalize the aviation industry, which means seize all the airline assets, their planes, their crews, their ground crews, uh, everything, their requisitions, their manufacture for the war effort. And for Gorel, that was going to be the end of the airlines. That was his, that was his opinion. So he led a movement inside the ATA to get the airlines to agree to work together. Now, these are big airlines coming off of a big scandal, and they have every reason to be in competition with one another. These, they were fledgling industries at the time. It's hard to imagine that today. But they had every incentive from a business point of view to fight one another, to compete against one another for, for money, which was going to be limited. But he managed to convince them to start preparing everything, their logistics, their personnel, their manufacturing, everything about about it for the eventuality of war so that when war came, they could contract with the government rather than be seized by the government to do their work. And his belief was if they could do that, the U.S. could respond quickly, that much more quickly to war when it came. And so that was that was the idea. And he managed to convince them to do that, which is was at the time really unprecedented in American business. And interestingly, behind that, America's aircraft manufacturers, names you also probably know, Boeing, Grumman, Martin, North American, Consolidated, all followed suit and began to have discussions and then eventually began to share their technology, their know-how, their manufacturing techniques, their development, their engineering with each other to prepare for war. And they started to have some conversations about, okay, when war happens, who should build what? Who should build bombers? Who should build fighters? um, Who should build transport aircraft? So, for example, McDonnell uh, uh, Douglas built the DC-3, right? or the C-47 was the military designation, which became one of the most uh, important airplanes of the war and maybe the most important airplane in uh, American hi- global history, really. Boeing built bombers, the B-17, the B-29. Grumman built fighters, the, uh, 
the Hellcat, the Corsair. Martin built medium bombers. North American also built fighters. Consolidated also built uh, bombers. And that, that was going to be the plan. That's how they were going to do things. And even before the war started, in 1940, the benefits of this approach that Gorel had started really paid off in a very distinct way. In 1940, during the Battle of Britain, when Britain was fighting by itself against Nazi Germany, France had fallen, the rest of Europe had fallen, Soviet Union wasn't in the war yet, Britain was on its own and was getting assaulted by the German Blitz every single day. And they reached out to the United States, who was officially neutral, and they, first of all, had shipped a lot of their, their engineering know-how, the British were, to the United States just in case Nazi Germany uh, occupied them. But they asked the American aircraft manufacturers, we need a better fighter plane than what we have. Can you come up with something? And this was in September. And in four months, this is still a world record in aviation, in four months, American uh, manufacturers working through North American, uh, that manufacturing company, design, conceived of, designed, tested, and then manufactured the P-51 Mustang. In four months, it went from somebody's brain to mass production to be sent over to Europe. By that point, the Battle of Britain was over, but the United States had produced its first wartime fighter, and it turned out to be one of the most important fighters of the entire Second World War. Uh, the Americans ended up using it far more than the British did. Um, but that started and that happened in large part because the best minds in the entire country, no matter what company they worked for in aviation, worked together to make this happen. Okay, so then move forward about a year and the United States enters the war after December 7th, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor. When the war began, <laughs> the airlines were ready the way Gorel had wanted them to be, and they were not seized by the government. Um, and America's aircraft manufacturers began to work together in uh, amazing ways. And the only way I can, there's only a couple ways I can explain this. Um, first of all, the way I just talked about it earlier, Boeing doing bombers, all that, that became a reality. And so they all started, all these companies started manufacturing these planes on their own. Now, the demand, of course, was immense because the United States was going to have to fight in Europe and the Pacific, right, in, in large numbers. And so a large number of planes were going to be needed uh, to win the wars against Nazi Germany and Japan. And so these companies not only agreed to share technology, but they also started sharing the burden of manufacturing. Uh, for example, if a certain company could not keep up with the quota that it needed, other companies would step in and help them meet their quotas by building their aircraft in their assembly plants. American automotive companies got in on it. Ford and General Motors, other than building Jeeps, built aircraft for the, uh, the majority of the war. In fact, only 140 cars were made in the United States for personal sale during the war. Those companies instead worked on airplanes. So when Boeing and other companies fell behind on occasion in their quotas, Ford and GM used their assembly lines to pick up the slack. There's a, there's a famous story that when Grumman fell behind uh, on their manufacturing of Hellcat and Corsair fighters in 1943, GM built an entire brand new assembly line in Michigan in a week to make these, to manufacture these planes to help keep, keep up with that. So, and this turned out to be really decisive in the end. Um, just to give you a sense of how successful this was, in 1940, before the United States entered the war, 3,000 planes were made by all these companies combined. 3,000. By 1944, they were making 300,000. That's a 1,000% increase in four years. 
because of what Big Bird sang about or would sing about <laughs> cooperation, right? A recognition that these companies could not be competitive in the long term if there was no world to be competitive in. U.S. air power turned out to be decisive in winning the war. No one argues about that. I mean, American airplanes became one of the most important factors in why Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan lost the war. And it all happened not just kind of because, but precisely because these big companies used to competing with one another put that put those things aside for a longer term, larger goal that they all recognized had to be met if they ever wanted to continue to grow as businesses and contribute to American prosperity. Okay, so there's your history lesson. <laughs> now, so where does this fit today? Well, it got me thinking about the ongoing discussions and challenges uh, that we're having uh, about uh, the creation of the COVID vaccines and their distribution. Uh, if you've been following this, uh, it's been a bit of a mess of late. Uh, the big, the big manufacturers, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca had the quantum leap a year or so ago of developing their each, they're developing their own vaccines, um, based in large part on government subsidies to produce them and then to distribute them and to make billions upon billions of doses. Those, those companies in the United States the U.S. has a surplus of that, and so there have been calls from the United Nations and other organizations, the World Health Organization, for those surplus doses to be sent around the world, and even more requests that those companies, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson, open up their patents for their formulas, if you will, as well as their techniques uh, for uh, mass production and distribution to areas around the world, particularly in Africa and in Asia, where they can be mass-produced on their own. The goal, of course, for the global community, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, is that by March of 2021, the goal is to have 40% of the globe uh, immunized fully for COVID-19. That is seen as a key threshold in global economic recovery and then as an extension to perhaps a little bit more political stability, <laughs> that type of thing all of which would be very good. And some companies are a little more open to this than others. Uh, Moderna is getting a lot of, of press lately because they're not willing to share their patent formula and their manufacturing process, instead pushing hard to have the surplus doses that already exist distributed. However, others are saying, couldn't they do stuff like with airlines, for example, to get those distributed? And that becomes the big challenge. Last week at the U.N. General Assembly, uh, the General Assembly leaned on the United States to lean on those companies to either distribute or share those patents uh, in order to make that goal. Uh, some have called upon uh, President Biden to uh, invoke the Defense Production Act, uh, a 1950 law that allows uh, the president, in the case of a national security emergency, to direct certain companies on what to make and what to manufacture. This was also something under the previous administration that was pushed uh, to very little success. But nevertheless, that is an option. And this current administration doesn't want to do that, at least not yet. And so, and of course, what that does is that it brings up that age-old <laughs> debate between should the government step in and make something happen or should companies do the right thing and see that bigger picture and make those decisions for themselves because it's the right thing to do and it's the best thing for their business in the long run. 
And based on what I just put forward about Gorel, it seemed to suggest that perhaps companies themselves could really be the engines to make this change. You wouldn't necessarily have to have the government stepping in like Gorel feared in, 19, in 1941 to nationalize this or force companies to do this when they can do it themselves. Gorel's big success was that he convinced the airlines and then the airline manufacturers followed suit, convinced them that it was in their best interest for business to make this short-term adjustment to cooperate. What Big Bird called that moment at that right moment. <laughs> I'm talking about Big Bird like he's a great philosopher. Maybe he is. <laughs> but what Big Bird talked about that right moment, those airlines took the right moment to work together in the short term for their collective long-term success. And these companies that I just mentioned who have done, frankly, heroic work to create uh, this vaccine and make so many doses available, they have an opportunity to do something similar. And it isn't insane or an overstatement to say that like the impact that Gorel and the aircraft manufacturers had on the war, that this, an act like this, a move like this on the part of these companies wouldn't save the world because it could. Because make no mistake, a continued pandemic is not going to be good for global stability. It's not. We tend to focus so much on what it's doing in this country, and there's more than enough instability in this country for anyone's comfort. And a large part of it has to do with the intensity of what the COVID era has unleashed in all of us. But a global instability on the basis of a pandemic is dangerous. And for me, this is where, frankly, the petty gripes in the big scheme of things about mandates and disinformation about vaccines becomes downright dangerous on a global level. There are far bigger issues at hand, as far as I'm concerned, than our comfort with our own political stances or what it means when we take a look at this bigger picture and when we take a look at historical precedents for this. Before December 7th, 1941, millions of Americans had, in retrospect, their heads in the sand about what was coming. And then paid for it dearly after Pearl Harbor. And yes, the response in the United States to that was massive and it helped win a war, something that the country continues to be proud about. But why wait for a catastrophe? A couple of weeks ago when I talked about September 11th, I, I, suggest, I wondered openly, why is it that it takes crises when our collective backsides are in a sling for us to cooperate, do the right thing, put aside differences to make these things happen? Right? And if it can happen before like it happened then, you know, then of course it can happen today. It may not look the same. There may not be a surprise attack around the corner or anything like that, but it doesn't need to be. There are few things more destabilizing than failing public health. When public health fails in any area, and this has been the case since for as long as there's been public health, so mid to end 19th century, when public health slides, the people who live in those areas where it's sliding are directly affected and it can cascade out and bring down nations. It's happened before. It can bring down nations, which destabilizes regions, which allows everything from despotic regimes to emerge to hateful rhetoric and ethnic cleansing. All of these things can happen when the basics of what human beings need to survive and then thrive are threatened. 
That's why famine, right? Or climate change. That's why those things are existential threats to society. Those things have are those things I just mentioned seem to be bigger than this. And in this sense, the vaccine question comparatively could be an easy fix. All they need is an Edward, Edgar Gurrell. So that's what I just wanted to suggest for today. That's what I want to talk about. And that's why, that's why I'm a big fan of Big Bird today. You should look up the song. That's cooperation. You can find it on YouTube pretty easily. So those are my thoughts on this for today. I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us for another episode of This Show is All About You. Uh, again, if you're interested in knowing more about our sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, check out airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or reach out to them directly at info at airwayscience.org to find out about their programs and all the good things that they are doing on the basis of cooperation. <laughs> and so look for those places where you can cooperate yourself and maybe reach out to those companies I mentioned directly and suggest that they take a page from Edgar Gurrell. Okay, so until next time, I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. And uh, over the next week or so, everyone, do what I always say you should do. Chins up, everyone.